Good morning. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they off- offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight, and with mildew, and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the wine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Good morning. Our final week. Haggai, I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun, and we certainly chased down a lot of Old Testament themes and built lots of background. We'll do that again this morning, too, because you've all been curious. Can you keep a fold of meat meat in the fold of your garment? You've always asked that question, so we're going to answer it. <laughs> but Haggai, Haggai has been fun to preach and fun to study. Hopefully, in such a short book, it's two chapters, and yet you at least can recognize there is a lot here. And my hope, my prayer this week, is that you would realize that is true of every book of the Bible, that there is so much richness. (laughs) If there's this much richness in a two-chapter book, think about how much richness in a book like John. It's everywhere. So I I pray that, that this short sermon series would motivate you to have a fresh desire to study scripture and experience the richness of God's word. So the book is largely about having and keeping right priorities before the Lord. Setting our priorities right and then keeping them there is hard work. But with the proper motivation, which I hope we can see some of the motivation this morning, that can make all the difference. So that's our last section, is a proper motivation, looking ahead in hope. So a quick recap, where we've been so far in the book. So the people, a remnant of the former glory of Israel, have returned from exile. They're now back in the land. They're in Jerusalem. And they're commissioned to rebuild the temple. 
And after a, a false start, they're slow to rebuild the temple. And even worse, they're spending their time and resources on building their own houses. And so the Lord speaks through the prophet Haggai to call the people to consider their ways. Their priorities are out of order and they experience curse because of wrong priorities. God actually causes drought and brings about futility because of their disobedience and their unfaithfulness to the covenant. Now we see at the end of chapter 1 that the people respond in obedience. They actually begin to resume the work on the temple. And God tells them and promises them that he is with them. He is in their midst, even though the temple has not been rebuilt. Because God's desire has always been to dwell in fellowship with his people. Now, last week we looked at chapter 2, and that begins with the people working, rebuilding the temple, but they grow discouraged. It's hard work, and they are not seeing the former glory. It falls far short of Solomon's temple, and some of them remembered what that looked like. And again, Haggai speaks the words of the Lord to the people. While the, the remnant can only see what's physically in front of them, Haggai calls them to have eyes of faith, that they would look towards future glory. And that future glory being the advent of Christ. is the greater glory than any building made with hands. And so for the remnant of Judah, these are the promises that the Lord gives them, makes to them to give them hope for the future. So now we'll wrap up our final section this morning. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. And the people receive more good news about the future. While their ways have cost them, Haggai again assures blessing will come soon. Last week we saw the, the greater, more glorious house to come. And this week we'll look at the greater priesthood and a greater kingdom. You can't have a greater priesthood or a greater kingdom without a greater priest and a greater king. So overall, the book of Haggai is organized in a chiasm, where it's kind of bookends that point to the center. And so the high point of the book is the middle, the passage we looked at last week. And so then the sections on either side kind of have parallel to them. And so if you think about it as a mountain, we went up to the top of the mountain last week, and now we're coming down, and we have a, a new perspective. And so Haggai's going to repeat some of the similar themes that he did in chapter 1. But with our new perspective, we'll have a, a greater appreciation for the glory that he's promising them. So if, it, if some things sound repetitive in this section, it's because it is. But Haggai expands and, and puts them in a, a more glorious framework. So the structure of our passage, 10 through 23, looks like this. Verses 10 through 14 speak to the current futility of the people through the priesthood. And then verses 15 through 19 promise future blessings, beginning now when Haggai is speaking to the people, from this day onward. And then verses 20 to 23 talk about a future permanent kingdom ruled by a permanent king. Greater priesthood with a greater priest, greater kingdom, and a greater king. So let's pray that we would understand this passage, that I would handle it rightly, 
and that the Lord would be pleased to apply this to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can approach you in peace and that we can actually call you Father and ask you things as sons and daughters. I pray that your name would be hallowed this morning, not just here at Grace Church or in Wyoming, but around the world as your people gather. Please strengthen your church to accomplish great things for the kingdom, things that will make earth more and more like heaven. May your will be done this morning and on into this week. May your words stir us to godly action. May our faith work out in tangible ways. Strengthen our souls. We ask that the daily bread you have provided for us in your word would feed us. And may we hear and respond. May sin be confessed and put to death. Forgive us of our areas of unbelief. Forgive us of our dullness or ignorance. Forgive us for sinning against one another. And may we be gracious towards others as well. Help us to be quick to forgive. Whether that's in our own families, our neighborhoods, or one another within the church. Father, deliver us from temptation and evil. May we resist the temptation to be distracted. May we focus during this time while your word is preached. May we delight in dwelling in your presence this morning. Keep us from sin as we scatter this afternoon. We thank you that your word is sufficient for all things. So please, through your Holy Spirit, may your word do more than we can imagine this morning. Amen. All right, so we'll look at the current priesthood, and Haggai asks some questions. And we see as well that it starts with a time marker, as we've seen in the previous sections. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. This time we are in is the ninth month in the Hebrew calendar. It's the 12th month in our calendar. So it's December 24th, which would mark the first day of Hanukkah and Christmas Eve. But of course, those holidays both came much later than the time that Haggai lived. So instead, there's two biblical reasons for this date. First, it was the planting season for this area, and you see lots of planting and harvesting themes throughout Haggai. And it's also the date that marked the dedication of this temple. They'd been working on it for a few months. Now they're ready to rededicate the temple. This is something that Hanukkah will then pick up on later in the history of Israel. The rest of this whole chapter occurs on this date, the ninth, the 24th day of the ninth month. So Haggai begins asking questions of the priests on behalf of the people. And one of the priest's duties was to teach and explain the law. And so Haggai is asking the priests to do just that. But the questions aren't for mere information's sake. Haggai's asking rhetorical questions to get at what he wants to say to the people. He's asking these questions to get at the spiritual state of the remnant. In a way, it's similar to when Nathan the prophet told a parable to David. It wasn't just telling a, a fun story. He was getting at a point to expose sin in David. And that's what Haggai's doing here as well. So he asks two questions, and he gets two answers from the priests. So the first question is in verse 12. 
Haggai asks, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. So it's a strange question to us. And so we need to understand why would he ask this? What's the context of of Haggai asking this of the priests? And so we have to go back to the Levitical law code. And both questions refer back to that. This first one has to do with holiness. What is holiness? Well, in the, the organization of Israel, the middle where God dwelt, either in the tabernacle or later in the temple, the closer you got to the middle, the closer you got to the presence of the Lord and his holiness. And there, with each step towards the middle, fewer people could enter, and there were more stipulations with each step. So step one is the outer court where any Israelite could go and bring their offering, but they must be holy. And then step two is the holy place, the outer room, the outer area of the tabernacle or the temple. And only priests could enter this area. And priests had to be consecrated and set apart for their duties. And then the final step would be into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant resided, and the very presence of God dwelt there. And only the high priest could enter this area. And he had further requirements and instructions on how to offer sacrifices for atonement. So the further inside you went, the closer you came to the holiness of God. So what does that have to do with what Haggai is talking about? Well, when people would offer the various animal sacrifices, they would present it on the altar. And the altar would make the sacrifice holy. And then the priests were able to take some of that sacrifice home. They would either eat it in the presence of the Lord, and some of them they were able to take home as a provision for their family. Because they ministered at the temple, they were able to provide for their family through that. So they would take the meat that has been made holy on the altar, and they would wrap it in the fold of their garment or their robe, and they would carry it home. And so the question then is, this, this meat that's been made holy, can it, through degrees, make other things holy? Can you take the meat wrapped in the, the priest's robe, and if you touch something else, does that other thing become holy? And the priests answer and say, no. Holiness does not spread that way. In fact, if, if you're not consecrated, and you touch holy things, those things become unholy or unclean. So Haggai goes on and asks the second question. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it it does become unclean. So we've addressed holiness in the first question. Clean and unclean is the topic of the second question. This is another feature of the covenant that we're not immediately familiar with. These are the things that we we don't always read because they're in a book like Leviticus. And we assume they're irrelevant to us today. So it might take a little work to understand what these are, but it helps us to move forward. So a better word than clean might be purity. 
Basically, when, when God gave the covenant, many of the rules and statutes emphasize being clean, being ceremonially clean. And this is a different category than holiness. But it is a state that points to death in the world, that there is death. And so when we come encounter with things that are unclean, it reminds us of death and dying. So as a result, if you were unclean, it would keep you from the assembly and being in God's presence. There were requirements around foods, bodily discharges, diseases, and even mold in your house. And each of these these categories had different instructions on how to become clean again. For example, when a, a woman gave birth, she would be unclean because it involves blood and discharges. Now, obviously, giving birth is not sinful or immoral. But the mother would have had to be unclean for a set amount of time. And in order to return to the community, she would need to become clean and go through washings and making offerings. And then she'd be able to return. It was a normal part of the the people of, of Israel. And so Haggai's question involves someone who has touched a dead body. Again, part of life, people would have touched dead bodies regularly. It wasn't sinful, it wasn't superstitious, but it would make someone ceremonially unclean. And so Haggai's point is that while holiness doesn't spread through contact, the the meat doesn't make other things holy, if you're unclean or something else is unclean, that does spread through contact. So holiness is difficult to pass on, but making things unclean was very easy. And this is where Haggai ties these two priestly questions to the state of the people in verse 14. Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So Haggai, again, reminds the people of their spiritual state since their return from exile. Without correct priorities... Without true faith and repentance, their offerings are profane before God. Without the proper sacrificial system, which they are working to rebuild, they cannot become clean or offer holy offerings. And so essentially everything they're doing is just increasing the profanity and the uncleanness. Now once they rebuild the temple and dedicate it, they will have a place to offer right sacrifices. But these questions of the priest still show the need for something better. Holiness does not spread. Uncleanness, the reminder of death, spreads easily. So fast forward to the New Testament, looking to something greater. And we see a new priest. And he will usher in a new and better priesthood. And so there's the well-known story of Jairus' daughter. And then within that story is the the woman who is bleeding, has been bleeding for 12 years. It's found in in three of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 9, Mark 5, Luke 8. And so it's two stories in one, but both help us see how Jesus is the greater priest. So here's some of the relevant pieces for us. There's a girl who's dying, and her father Jairus asked Jesus to come, come to his house and touch her. And heal her. That's right off the bat. Interesting. But on the way to Jairus' home, a crowd gathers around Jesus. You might say he was in the midst 
of the crowd. And a woman had been bleeding for 12 years with no cure. She had tried many different things. She comes all the way into the middle of the crowd, presses in, and touches the fringe or the fold of Jesus' garment. So here's Jesus, God made flesh, holy flesh, holy meat, wrapped in his priestly garment. And the woman touches his garment. So according to Haggai's question, you can't become holy just by touching the fold of a garment. The woman wouldn't have even been allowed in the court of the temple because of her uncleanness. And yet Jesus knows that power has gone out of him. And he tells the woman, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Instead of needing to go through a priest made holy through rituals, the woman boldly approaches the Holy Son of God directly. And Jesus, our great high priest, reverses the effects of sin and death. Instead of being touched by an unclean woman and being made unclean himself, Jesus, as the perfect holy priest, heals her. and makes it possible for her to be clean and holy. The story continues. Jesus arrives at Jairus' house and touches a dead body. Again, instead of becoming unclean, he raises the girl and returns her to life. Holiness is spreading. And the signs of death, like uncleanness, are being removed by this greater priest. Jesus is a different kind of priest. It's incredible enough that he heals the sick, raises the dead, but even more amazing is he is transforming the priesthood. Instead of holiness being confined and uncleanness spreading, Jesus is reversing those. More signs that the end of death is coming with the appearing of Christ. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he expands the priesthood. Instead of narrowing access to, the, to a holy God, he expands access, which is what the priesthood is. All who are saved by the gospel enter into the priesthood. We are priests. We have the Holy Spirit who empowers us as we bring Jesus to those around us. What is our job as priests in this new covenant, in this new priesthood? We're called to several things. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord to the world around us. We're called to purify ourselves by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And we are called to live lives of holiness. Jesus is the one that makes us holy. He declares that you are holy before God. But we still must ensure that we're pure when we approach in worship. This is the simplicity of what we do every Sunday morning, of confession and assurance of pardon. So remembering that while our status before God does not change, we are saints permanently. And yet we can still enter into worship in a profane way if we're not careful. So it's a reminder of the seriousness of worship when we do the exhortation, when we do the call to confession in order that the gospel would purify us to enter into right worship. And recognizing our status as priests in this glorious priesthood 
is, is one part of what should motivate us to live according to God's priorities. We're now priests representing the Lord to a dying world. With the next section, starting in verse 15, we return to where we found ourselves in chapter 1. Consider your ways. Only instead of calling the people to repent from working on their houses and making them fancy, Haggai now puts a, a marker down and looks forward. He reminds them of their fertility before they began the rebuilding effort. God had cursed the people. He'd cursed them in the field and in the barn and in their houses in hopes that the people would repent and turn back to God. And that's the purpose of God's curses, is to lead his people back to him. So the remnant has been beaten up by Haggai quite a bit. They're reminded multiple times about the futility of their efforts because they sought their interests instead of the interests of the Lord. But the next two verses marks a change. Verse 18, Haggai tells the people that this day of dedication marks a new start. Look at verse 18. He says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. They've experienced the curses of blight and mildew, drought, meager harvests. But this day is a new day. Remember, this is the month of planting for Israel. And if they planted seeds, they would have no idea what kind of harvest would come. I've planted plenty of seeds and gardens, dreaming of a magnificent harvest, (laughs) but having no real idea if it would work. Haggai is a reminder that God is the Lord of the harvest and controls all things. So even if the planter does everything right, if God desires to curse that harvest, it will be a poor harvest. But the reminder here is that the inverse is also true. If the remnant plants seeds with right priorities, trusting the Lord for provision, the Lord will bless. This takes us back to promises that Moses spoke back in Deuteronomy 30. So before they have even taken the land, the Lord told them what would happen. He told them that they would experience the curses and be removed off the land. And then he promises that they would return. He says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God. So this is the remnant coming back. Return to the Lord your God. You and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is all part of the Lord's plan. He has always planned to bless them, to return them to the land and prosper. Moses connects the returning to the Lord with blessing. It's the same connection that Haggai is making here. Fearing the Lord rather than men and keeping the Lord's commandments will bring blessing. And this is often more than spiritual blessings. It can show up as material blessings. 
Their fields will reap harvests. Now, that might sound like prosperity gospel. Maybe it could sound that way. But this is what scripture says. And separating spiritual and physical is actually a lot harder than it seems. Instead of receiving blessings for obedience, according to, this is what the prosperity gospel says. Instead of receiving blessings for obedience, according to what God has promised, the prosperity gospel turns it into a formula without good news. The prosperity gospel says, if you do X or give this much money, you'll receive the blessing you want. And if you don't get the blessing you want, something went wrong with you. But the true gospel of scripture always begins with what God has already done for us. And that leads to the requirements of the covenant. I have done this. Now you keep your terms, including blessings and curses. But blessings are real and they are tied to the covenant. It might not always show up in the ways we want, but when our priorities are to seek the Lord's priorities, God's word says that he will provide. Matthew 6, seek seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These things include material things. Do you believe that God will bless you if you reorient your priorities around his will? Do you believe that if you cut out idolatry or wrong priorities, that God would be pleased to lavish blessings on you? Be strong, Grace. You might have to make hard decisions. You might displease people with those decisions. But whatever is out of place, work in faith to put it right. It might mean canceling a streaming service. It might mean disappointing your kids when you tell them no to a sport or activity. It might mean your body experiences more pain because you are pushing to be here on Sundays. But the promise Haggai speaks is true. That when we consider our ways, when we put things right, blessing will follow. The final section is another promise related to a better future. This time, Haggai speaks about a better kingdom. Verse 20 The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Once again, we see this promise to shake the heavens that we saw last week. In our last passage, there was a slightly different wording, and we saw that it was shaking the cosmos and bringing the new covenant and the greater glory found in Christ. Christ being the greater glory and his body establishing the church. And now we see more shaking. This time the description is destruction. And instead of other houses or bringing in the nations and their treasures, This time it relates to the kingdoms of the world. In the book of Daniel, there's several visions of empires on earth being removed one by one. First, it's the Babylonians. Then it's the Persians, where Haggai's time is. After that, it's the Greeks and then the Romans. So by the time of Haggai, Babylon is done. The Persians are on their way out. The Greeks and the Romans will be next. 
That brings us to the time of Christ. And that sets up the prophecy by Haggai when he speaks of destroying all other kingdoms. Daniel 2, 44 says, And in the days of those, those kings, the, the four kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is the unshakable, indestructible kingdom that was promised by Haggai. Now, not everyone sees that this shaking refers to those kingdoms being destroyed. Some see it as a future destruction at the the very end of history. But remember that this passage is also quoted in Hebrews 12. And there it compares shakings in Haggai with something parallel in the Exodus. Notice the language about overthrowing chariots and horses and their riders, hearkening back to the Red Sea and the glorious victory for Israel over the ruling kingdom of their day, the Egyptians. And that coincides with the covenant given at Sinai, which Hebrews 12 talks about as well. So if that's the, the, the former shaking, what future event is Haggai talking about? Hebrews 12, 26 gives us some more clues. So the writer of Hebrews is taking Haggai's quote about shaking to describe the permanent kingdom. He says that at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As I mentioned, the remnant lived under the rule of Persia and King Darius. But Haggai, with some help from Hebrews, points the remnant to a future and better kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's Jesus' kingdom, and that kingdom is here. It's permanent. It's expanding. It will take a while to fully grow. It's like a mustard seed. But it is here. And we, we talk about the church a lot. And it's a vital piece of the kingdom. But the kingdom is actually the larger realm. The kingdom includes everything we do. Church, work, family, art, entertainment, government. All things And there are things that belong to the church, like right worship, sacraments, membership. But everything else we do in life is a chance to work for the kingdom. There is not an area of life where God is indifferent about things. It means eventually, someday, all institutions and all areas of life will conform to Christ's rule and the rule of his kingdom. All enemies will be put under his feet. All nations will come in, and we should use this to motivate our lives. As we fight to have right priorities, remember that your life matters, and what things you do in life matter, even the mundane things, because those things go towards a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It doesn't mean it's a straight line towards glory and nothing bad will happen. Expanding the kingdom is hard work. It will involve toil and suffering. 
That might be a large part of our immediate future. But the longer-term vision is one of expansion and glory. We've already seen a better priesthood with a better priest, and now we have a better kingdom, begging for a better king. So the very last verse of Haggai, verse 23, addresses Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. He was the current governor, not king, even though he's from the line of Judah. He's under the rule of Darius. He's the son of Shealtiel, the grandson of Jehoiachin, the last king of Judah before exile. They're just two two generations. And like many of Israel and Judah's kings, Jehoiachin, also known as Jeconiah, keep that in mind, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah warned Jeconiah what would happen as a result of his evil ways. This is from Jeremiah 22. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So the Babylonians are the ones that took Judah into captivity. Strong words. And just as Jeremiah prophesied, this happened. Jeconiah, Zerubbabel's grandfather, was taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, along with the holy vessels from the temple. Notice what else he mentions, that the Lord would tear off Jeconiah like a signet ring. And a few verses further on, there's this additional warning. Thus says the Lord, still speaking to Jeconiah, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So Israel will no longer have a ruler with the Lord's authority. There will be no successor to the throne in Judah either. That's a grim future for Israel. So even though the remnant may rebuild the temple, maybe there will be a greater priest and priesthood. If the remnant's familiar with Jeremiah, it sounds like ruling as a nation is out of the question. But this points to another of God's promises of something better and more glorious than Israel's, Israel's remnant knew. So look at verse 23 of Haggai. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Where it seemed that the Davidic line was cut off in Jeconiah's day, the Lord of hosts ensures that the line will continue. It's a story of resurrection and new life to the line of David. Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring. Well, what's a signet ring? A signet was the official mark of a ruler. It would have their, their mark or their icon, and whatever, whenever an official would make a decree, they would stamp the signet into wax or clay. And so whatever was stamped on the decree was as if the ruler was saying that thing. It had that kind of force, that kind of authority. We see a variety of rulers in the Old Testament who had signet rings. Back as far as 
Judah himself. Joseph had a signet ring from Pharaoh. All the way up to King Darius. King Darius had a signet ring that he made decrees with. And from the the passage that we just heard in Jeremiah, the king of Judah also had a signet ring to represent authority before God, that he was God's king. But Jeconiah would have his signet ring ripped off. And not only that, but his line would be cut off. There would be no successor. And yet now Haggai is promising a new ruler, like a signet. What was dead, the old line of Judah, is in a sense resurrected through God's promise to Zerubbabel. He has chosen Zerubbabel to point to a greater ruler, Jesus Christ. And Christ is king. He came to declare the gospel of his kingdom and establish his kingdom. Because he's the rightful king who rules over everything. He rules by his perfect law, the word of God. He is the true signet ring. He has all authority, and he will conform everything in his kingdom to match his image. That's what the signet ring is for. Whatever the king does impresses his image on it. That's what he's doing in this world. So we, as citizens of his kingdom, increasingly we must match His image, be conformed to the image of Christ. And then in the power of the gospel, we work to transform the world around us, to conform it to the image of Christ. That the signet ring will be pressed (laughs) into everything. Greater priesthood, greater priest. Greater kingdom, unshakable, permanent kingdom, greater king. So as we wrap up, the book of Haggai, we've spent three weeks in it. How do we respond? We've covered a lot of ground. We've whipped around a lot of different places and themes. What do we take away from this? What is the practical application? Well, the first and most significant truth of the book is that God's priorities bring blessing. And when we cross up our priorities, we won't be blessed. And we will be cursed. So grace, consider your ways. Live intentionally for God's glory. Evaluate your time and your calendar. How do you spend it? What gets put on the calendar? What gets missed? And begin with the largest pieces first. Before we can talk about working for the kingdom and being a priesthood, we must begin with fervent worship with the saints on the Lord's Day. Start with Sunday mornings. Block them off in order that you can gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ to be fueled to do the rest of the work we're called to. We've talked about subtle drifts that can happen and and pull us off course, right? The example of of playing in the ocean that you don't even recognize, but you've drifted away from where your, your camp is set up. That doesn't take much effort at all. It actually takes effort to maintain the right priorities. And so worship on the Lord's Day is like a giant anchor driven into the sandy depths to keep us in place. So fight. Fight to be here. Say no to other things if you need to. They might be fine things, but it might mean saying no to youth, youth sports, a jaunt to the cabin, or sleeping in. It might even look like paying attention on Saturdays and ensure your family isn't too worn out so you can make it on Sunday. 
this is the kind of intentionality Haggai is requiring of us. And if that anchor of regular worship is in place, move on to other areas. Begin asking questions. How do you decide to do the things that you do? Why don't you do other things? And then work out from there to ensure you're in striving to have right priorities and to strive for personal holiness. Shut off the phone. Begin your day in prayer and the word. And let that holiness spread to your family. Men, are you leading family worship on a regular basis? Do you pray with and for your wife and children? Do you read the word with them? Evaluate your treasures. Where does your money go? What does that say about your priorities? Consider your ways. Kids, ask your parents why you do the things you do as a family. Do it respectfully, but ask good questions that you as a family can talk about. What are our priorities and what should they be? Where have we gotten off course? Evaluate your attitude. Are you living for the glory of God and building his kingdom? Or do you actually want your own glory for your own kingdom? What causes you anger or frustration? Is it because Christ's kingdom is disturbed? Or is it actually your kingdom that's threatened and causes you anger and frustration? Ask one another. Ask an elder. May we all help one another orient around the Lord together. And maybe a a simpler way to think through priorities is remembering that we're subjects of the king. What does the king require? In what ways can we make his kingdom glorious? So asking, do you subject all of life to the king? I want to end with a passage from Philippians. It's a well-known passage, Philippians 2. I was looking at this this morning, and it matches up really well with what Haggai's trying to drive at. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So Haggai essentially starts with have the mind of Christ, have the priorities of the Lord, consider your ways and ensure they line up with the mind of Christ. And then when the people start working and get discouraged, (laughs) it's not glorious. But if we have the mind of Christ, if we have the attitude, it's being willing to humbly serve, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't lead to immediate and glorious results. It means being obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then we also can have the right motivation. The glorious future that awaits when the kingdom reaches its fullness and every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.